Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. This is Stuart Haynes, the host of the iFormerX podcast, and we've got another terrific episode for you today. If you are not already a member of iFormerX, please consider joining our community of practice. It's free to health professionals and those training to become a health professional. All you need to do is head over to our website, iFormerX.org, and sign up today. The COVID-19 pandemic brought a major shift in our care delivery system, as it is far more common today to receive care from someone who is located miles away. Of course, telemedicine and telepharmacy are not new. We've been delivering care to patients using telephones and remote monitoring devices and video conferencing for decades. But the sheer magnitude and scale of remote care delivery has really ramped up in the last three to four years. However, similar to getting a degree from an online college, receiving healthcare services from an online provider has been considered inferior to care that is provided face-to-face. Now, whether that characterization is true is another matter. Many patients and providers believed that whenever possible, care should preferentially be delivered live, in-person, and face-to-face. But the pandemic upended care delivery and opened a lot of people's eyes. Care delivered from a distance is certainly a lot more convenient. Instead of driving to an appointment, sitting in a waiting room, reading an outdated copy of Good Housekeeping or Home and Garden magazine, and then meeting with a provider for only 10 or 15 minutes, perhaps most primary care services could be delivered using video teleconferencing. But while it might be more convenient, is the quality similar? Well, that's what a recent study published in JAMA Network Open attempted to address. And given that many pharmacists provide care to patients by phone and teleconferencing, I thought this would be a great study to review on iFormRx. And joining me today are Haley Classing, and Keaton Thomas from Tria Health in Overland Park, Kansas. And if you're not familiar with Tria Health, I I encourage you to check out their website online. Dr. Classing is a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, and she's a key player on their training and development team at Tria Health and serves as a preceptor in their PGY-1 pharmacy residency program. And at the time of this recording, Dr. Thomas is currently the PGY-1 pharmacy practice resident at Tria Health, but but he'll be staying on after his residency to become a full-time member of the Tria Healthcare team. So Haley, Keaton, welcome to the iFormerX podcast, both as first-time contributors. Hi, Stuart. Thanks so much for having us today. Hey, Stuart. Yeah, thanks for having us on. So Keaton, I'd like to start with you. I want to start our discussion by putting some context to this study. I think many providers and patients have This belief that telemedicine is somehow inferior to care provided in person, face-to-face. Can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of telemedicine and telepharmacy over the past few decades and what technologies are typically used today and what are some of the potential advantages and disadvantages of remote care delivery? So telehealth, also known as telemedicine, has experienced significant growth since its inception. 
In recent years, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, it has expanded even further due to the limitations on in-person options during that time. Uh, the beauty of telehealth lies in its diverse range of modalities. So you can connect with a healthcare professional through phone calls, video chats, and then there's also yeah, secure messaging or even remote monitoring devices like those blood sugar and blood pressure machines. And all that collects that vital information that you can give to your provider. Uh, however, like you said, telehealth is not necessarily a novel concept. It dates all the way back to 1879, where the Lancet published an article discussing the potential of telehealth and how the invention of the telephone could reduce the number of unnecessary office visits. As of more recent developments, we can now utilize remote monitoring devices that can provide essentially real-time data to providers. For example, a patient records several blood sugar readings over that 250 milligrams per deciliter in a certain time frame, which can trigger a same-day call from that healthcare provider to evaluate those readings much quicker than they would have been able to following a traditional follow-up schedule. Telepharmacy, for example, has seen a substantial growth where pharmacists can now review medications, conduct consultations, and remotely monitor patients from a distance. Some of the main advantages of telehealth, it allows you to receive healthcare regardless of your location, minimizing that need for travel, time off of work, or arranging childcare. Moreover, healthcare systems can implement tools to reduce wait times while also providing increased access to specialists who may not be geographically nearby. Despite its many benefits, telehealth does come with a few concerns. One prominent issue is the lack of access to a stable internet connection, which can be a challenge during video chats or when sharing real-time information. However, there are programs such as the Affordable Connectivity Program, which aims to address this obstacle. Additionally, using audio-only services can enhance the usability of telehealth. But there are other drawbacks as well. Telehealth does not necessarily cover every type of medical visit, and there are always security concerns when transmitting sensitive information online. Additionally, some insurance policies may not fully cover certain telehealth services, leading to potential coverage gaps. With these benefits and deficits in mind, this study aimed to see if the increased convenience of telemedicine and its wide uptake resulted in some worse quality of care. So, Haley, let's, let's talk about the study entitled Comparison of Quality Performance Measures for Patients Receiving In-Person versus Telemedicine Primary Care in a Large Integrated Health System. The study was published in JAMA Network Open, as I said, in September 2022 and was conducted by a group of researchers at WellSpan Health, which is a large integrated health system in Maryland and Pennsylvania. So can you tell us about the methods the investigators used and some of the key findings from the study? So like you said, the study was run in a large health system and was comparing patients who had exposure to telehealth to people who had traditional in-office visits only. And data was collected on patients for about a year and a half during the COVID-19 pandemic. So while this was not a great time for most of us, this was actually great timing for the study to occur as there was a, a great increase in the numbers of telehealth appointments occurring just in general response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So what the investigators were looking at was to determine with telehealth appointments increasing and wanting to make sure payers like Medicare and different commercial insurances continue to cover these services is if the quality of appointments is maintained. So to review quality, the authors used HEDIS measures or healthcare effectiveness data and information sets 
and they chose 16 different measures across five domains of primary care, cardiovascular care, diabetes, prevention and wellness, behavioral health, and pulmonary care. Data was gathered essentially through chart review to confirm if the HEAS measure was fulfilled or not. And for the study, there ended up being over 500,000 patients that were included. Around 400,000 were the in-office-only visits, and then a little over 100,000 patients were in the telemedicine group. One thing I want to note, though, is that the authors did have a hard time controlling for the number of visits, as well as the type of visits. So patients who were considered telemedicine could have potentially experienced more of a hybrid approach with both a blend of telemedicine and in-office visits. So overall, the results did show very positively for telehealth exposed visits with 11 of the 16 HEDIS measures that they reviewed favoring telehealth visits and even favored with statistical significance. The authors broke the measures down into care type domains of counseling, testing, or medication-based services. And with these categories found that telehealth exposed visits accounted for significantly improved performance in all of the counseling and testing-based domains. So of those testing-based domains, these are going to include things like up-to-date lipid panels in somebody with cardiovascular disease or in somebody with diabetes having that up-to-date A1C and urinalysis. And then for the counseling-based screenings, this is going to be things like having those immunizations up-to-date if they're indicated like a pneumococcal vaccine or a flu shot during the fall up-to-date cancer screening for those that are warranted, and having a depression screening. Now, on the flip side, those office-only visits did reflect a positive outcome for more of those medication-based measures, with significance seen in three of the five measures. And these included reviewing upper respiratory infection antibiotic stewardship and looking at patients with cardiovascular disease that were receiving appropriate secondary preventative medications. So, Keaton, let's talk about some of the strengths and limitations of the study. Health services research is incredibly difficult to perform because in most cases, you can't control for all the variables that might impact the outcomes. And even if you had the luxury of randomizing patients into different groups, you might still have differences in care delivery due to differences in the qualifications or the personalities of the people delivering the care. So. What did the investigators do in this study to try to mitigate bias and potential confounding variables? And how confident are you that care delivered via teleconferencing versus in-person care will result in similar or perhaps better health outcomes? So overall, this study had several strengths worth noting. Like Haley mentioned, it was conducted at a relevant time during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the HEDIS measures assessed were appropriate and addressed common issues that we see in primary care. Some of the general limitations of the study included that results relied on patient charts being updated accurately, the fact that it only took one telehealth visit over an 18-month period to be placed in the telehealth treatment arm, in conjunction with the fact that we don't know how many visits a patient had over that time period. And lastly, we're unsure of how big a role pharmacists played in either in-office or telehealth visits. So extrapolation to the general pharmacy practice is a bit limited in that regard. The authors did, however, implement strategies to mitigate bias and potential confounding variables. 
researchers used Epic's data mining and analysis tool, Slicer Dicer, to filter patients into hierarchical stages, compare the HEDIS measures of the two treatment arms. To ensure demographic comparability, they separated telemedicine exposure into two groups, uh, which were those who received telemedicine only versus those who received a hybrid of telemedicine and in-office visits, and combined the two groups during statistical analysis. Selection bias was managed by comparing data to a pre-COVID-19 baseline quality performance from 2018 to 2020, provide reassurance of data consistency, and further address by adding a regression model to control for sociodemographic factors of telemedicine exposure. Control for these, investigators obtained de-identified demographic data, which was stratified by age, race and ethnicity, sex, and social determinants of health. Race and ethnicity were self-reported, and a social determinants of health risk score included assessments of social risk needs, such as depression risk, tobacco and alcohol use, violence exposure and social isolation, food or transportation insecurity, and financial strain. An overall risk score was determined by the health system as an indicator of overall health risk to observe whether age, gender, race, and ethnicity, or comorbidities affected results. Researchers used non-aggregated patient-level data from Slicer-Dicer to perform multivariable logistic regression, which at the end revealed little to no difference after adjusting for the demographic factors, except for the depression screening, of which patients exposed to telemedicine were twice as likely to receive than those seen in in-office visits only. Based on all of the above, I believe that the researchers have done their due diligence to account for biases and confounders to illustrate that telehealth does not yield a substantially inferior experience compared to in-person visits. Well, as a person who is relatively healthy myself and who gets an annual health and wellness checkup every December and who has sought treatment for minor ailments only a few times in my entire life, I find the idea of avoiding the hassle of driving over to my primary care physician's office and sitting in that waiting room very appealing. So as I get older, though, and as my health starts to decline, I'm wondering what the limits of telehealth and remote delivery of care might be. Similar to online education, I think there are things that can be delivered very effectively online, and there are things that can't be done very well using our existing technology, really should be delivered in person. So Haley, where is that line? Who, where, when, how should we be using remote care delivery methods most effectively? Yeah, to really look at who and how, I think we also need to take into account the role that technology can play to enhance care. Uh, it's incredible to see where health technology has advanced to and the options of remote monitoring that are more accessible to patients now, which I feel only increases the opportunity and variety of patients that can be eligible for telehealth. For years now, we have had personal medical devices on the market uh, that patients can do at home, review those results with their providers during visits. But now in more recent years, we're expanding these devices to cellular or Bluetooth-based models that can connect directly with their provider software. Additionally, the types of devices are becoming more robust and a wider range of products that allow patients to be able to competently test at home for different types of diseases and ranging from different products like that typical blood pressure and blood sugar monitoring to a pulse oximeter, spirometry, and EKG readings. And these devices are now carrying FDA approval. 
the use of remote monitoring may now allow for a patient who has been uncontrolled in their health conditions, for example, say high blood pressure, to utilize remote monitoring and virtual visits that would have instead required going to the office every two to four weeks for a blood pressure check to now to be able to screen that blood pressure at home, have a telehealth visit more conveniently for them, and also allow, because that cellular-based meter is connecting straight to the software of the provider, being able to have much faster intervention for very high or very low blood pressure reading. Now, that being said, medical devices, it just can't take the place of a physical exam when a physical exam is warranted. So depending on a patient's age or concern, an in-office visit option is always going to be necessary. Additional patient-specific factors to think about is the patient is even comfortable using technology. If they have access to adequate technology, like Keaton mentioned, if they live in a rural area or have spotty internet or phone reception, they may not be able to connect to a provider visit. Do they have a private space available to discuss personal health information? And what's their communication and health literacy level like? They may be a patient that would comprehend more with a direct hands-on approach within the office. And then, of course, with telehealth, we're always going to have limitation. And a key one is going to be the provider. So if we continue to increase our utilization of telehealth and putting resources and funding into the service, we need to make sure that our providers are competent and skilled to deliver the service. And we need to focus on the training specifically for providing telehealth. So one thing to take into account is if a visit is provided telephonically or even through video and that video just has poor connection, or if the patient feels uncomfortable on camera and it has more of a rigid posture that provider is going to lose all behavioral cues and body language that are typically seen in office to help identify a patient comprehension level, comfort level, all kinds of different things within the appointment that we would typically use. So additional training in communication strategies for that information gathering stage is going to be needed for a provider. While technology can bring us several benefits, it does limit that personal connection that we have between us and the patients. So taking more time into that appointment and more effort to building in rapport and being sure to display compassion and empathy can go a long way into establishing a relationship virtually. And then lastly, going back to that technology device piece, the outcome is only going to be as good as the input. So it is very crucial that providers are making sure that they are training patients on how to properly use medical devices. So regardless of if this is done in office or part of the telehealth appointment, if somebody is going to be utilizing a remote monitoring device, they need to make sure that they know how to utilize it effectively and accurately. So this adds another level of training the provider to train the patient. But Stuart, really to go back to fully answer your question as to what that line is for who, where, when, and how to utilize telehealth most effectively, it really is going to come down to more studies. We really need to more information at this point to see who our ideal patients are without causing harm to patients, the frequency of these appointments, and if there's any kind of ideal blend between an in-office to virtual visit and how those virtual visits should be provided. Well, Keaton, Haley, thank you for being here on the iFormerX podcast today. And I'm so delighted that you 
agreed to write this commentary about this research paper and for sharing your wisdom with us. I know that TRIA Health is highly involved with telehealth and telehealth is here to stay. And, and these data suggest that many services can be effectively delivered at a distance. Is the trend to move more care online and provide it at a distance a good thing? Are we losing the human connection? Do you, do you think a hybrid model of care, similar to what many educational institutions have now adopted, taking advantage of the strengths of in-person care and the convenience of telehealth is the way to go? Well, tell us what you do in your practice. Do you offer telehealth services to increase access and reduce costs? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features. So be sure to log in every time you visit our website, iFormerX.org. And would you like to earn board recertification credit for listening to this podcast and, and reading the written commentary posted on our website? Well, you can. If you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, we've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to offer the Literature Evaluation an evidence-based practice series. And it's available online, on demand, anytime, anywhere. So just click on that link posted just below the written commentary on our website to learn more. And lastly, I want to thank Austin Morgan at TRIA Health for being an iFormerX contributor and recruiter. Uh, Austin approached me a few years ago asking how he and his colleagues at TRIA Health could get more involved. And since then, Austin has introduced iFormerX to his residents and students and has recruited new authors and reviewers and has been an author and reviewer himself. So thank you, Austin. I'm so grateful that you reached out to me and I truly appreciate your ongoing commitment to using the best available evidence to inform your ambulatory care pharmacy practice and patient care recommendations. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.